Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dwyer and this is The Lingon, exploring Ireland's oldest frontier. The Lingon Valley is probably not a name you're familiar with. I live relatively close to it and before recording this episode, it wasn't somewhere I knew much about. It forms part of the border between the modern counties of Kilkenny and Tipperary and in the 21st century, Aside from an intense sporting rivalry over hurling, there's no real difference on either side of this valley. However, this small, seemingly innocuous river was one of the most important frontiers in Ireland for thousands of years. Although the societies and kingdoms that lived on either side of this valley are long vanished, the region is littered with tombs, religious sites, castles and battlefields. Now, a few weeks ago, I met up with archaeologist Neil Jackman, who's an expert in the region, and we spent a morning driving down the valley. While we set out just to explore the Lingon, our conversations took in a range of topics, so this episode has a lot in it. Everything from what society was like 5,000 years ago to the spiritual beliefs of our distant ancestors, right down to the story of a battle in the 1798 rebellion. Now, before I get going, I want to introduce Neil. Lots of you will know him. He's always great to interview. He's been on the show a few times now, and he has his own podcast, Amplify Archaeology, which lots of you are familiar with. It's really worth checking out. Neil also runs a really cool service called Tua, where he provides itineraries for exploring places like the Lingon Valley, as well as tours and online lectures. Now, as the summer comes in, this is great for planning road trips, or exploring places like the Lingon Valley online. Now, the website is tua.ie. That's tua.ie. I have links to that in the show notes below. Now, to begin, though, Neil and myself met up at a place called Knock Row, a 5,000-year-old passage tomb similar to Newgrange, a site you might be more familiar with. Knock Row is similar to Newgrange in that it was built to align with the winter solstice, but before we got into the story of this fascinating tomb, 
We talked about ancient frontiers. This was a really intriguing discussion and it helps set the scene for this show and the next one. It is a very ancient boundary because it's the boundary, I suppose, beyond Tipperary and Kilkenny, it's the boundary between Leinster and Munster. So if we kind of work backwards in time from, say, the medieval period and, and so on, this had real significance there. And the kind of collection of monuments that we have, even going all the way back to here at Knockroll, where we have a Neolithic passage tomb. And even earlier than that, we can see that there are elements here that are pointing to this being a truly ancient boundary. We're sort of not grown on, it's in a, a sort of a little hollow, but it's not far away. You can just about, if you were here and you looked maybe 50, 100 metres maybe across over there, you'd see the remains of slate quarries. And that's part of this quite dramatic gorge that runs up the landscape here. And there's the Lingon River as well. And, and that seems to combine to form this boundary that, I don't know, it, it, when you look at it like so this kind of Neolithic site and we look behind us and there's a hill there called the Henny Hill and there's an enormous Bronze Age hill fort on top of that as well. Right. We're getting all of these clues really. Another clue that, that we... Sorry, just, but that this may have been significant well before the historical record. Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Because another clue that we get that points us towards that is down in the Anne Valley of Waterford and, and so on, and all the way up to a place called Kilmog that I know you featured before on the podcast, we have these beautiful portal tombs. They only exist on one side of the Lingon Valley. They don't exist on the other okay. side of it as well. So it looks like as early as the Neolithic, that this very minor little river that's very nondescript, it's not like the Shannon or something yeah, like that. Yeah. You can almost jump across it in parts, you know. You really only know about it because you can see the landscape yeah. going down into the valley, but the river itself is not, as you say, significant. Sorry, no, go on. No, anyway. all, no, that's the thing. Uh, so why that was chosen to be such a big cultural boundary for over 5,000 years, I don't know. It, it, it's not a physical boundary, as I say, in the, in the likes of, say, the River Shannon or, or yeah, something yeah. like that. Which Where you is, can understand people couldn't cross only, it or whatever. Exactly. Like that, there's yeah. only so many places you can cross it or afford it. It doesn't have that element here. So, But it's certainly a cultural boundary because people are choosing to do different things on one side. And the presence of the hill fort there in the Bronze Age tells us that people were monitoring the boundary as well and one of the things that we'll also catch as well as uh, hopefully today is a little bit of uh, the monastic richness we have here in the early medieval period when we're in what was the old kingdom of ossuary right now uh, you can find there's quite a lot of monastic sites all the way along the boundary as well and monasteries tended to be placed in these kind of nullman land kind of situation along borders along boundaries because they were the first places to be raided kind of thing and all of this sort of thing by the rival kingdoms and such so all the way through from the neolithic the bronze age we unfortunately we don't have too many iron age elements here the early medieval period and the medieval with all the tower houses we're seeing that this was a real place of significance and it's quite curious for that but the richness and the variety of the monuments here uh, you'd only really find it somewhere like the Boyne Valley. It is quite remarkable uh, that they got such good representation from uh, a, a really broad breadth of Irish history. And then we might talk a little bit about the site that's in front of us. Mm. It's not grow. People yeah. maybe might have become slightly more aware of it in recent years. I think there yeah. has been more coverage of the site. I'll let you explain. Do you want to begin maybe by just describing what we're looking at here? 
Sure. Well, if people know Newgrange, it's a similar monument. It's a Neolithic passage tomb. And in the 1990s, Professor Marisha Sullivan from UCD and a small team came along and, and Marissa was looking originally that there was a few stones around the side that displayed megalithic art and, and Marissa being an expert in that came down for a look and it was decided to uh, at that time that uh, excavations were underway at places like Nowth and there had been a lot of interesting discoveries at uh, Carrum Moor in Sligo that was looking at the chronology of these tombs and Morris decided that it would be good to excavate a site that was outside of either Sligo or the Boyne Valley to see how the, you know, are we seeing comparable dates across the whole thing or does it vary quite a bit? So excavations were carried out over a series of years in the 90s and what they found here at Knockrow is really interesting. It's not a massive tomb. It's, you know, it's very moderately sized and compared to the, the likes of Nowth or Newgrange, for example. It's maybe about 30 metres across, maybe even slightly less. But what they found is an incredibly rich amount of megalithic art that you would only really see in the Boyne Valley in Brittany. And it's very similar to that at Nowth and Gavrinus and places like that. It's on a prepared platform because it's set in this little slope area here. So people, you know, in the middle part of the Neolithic, uh, around about 3,400 BC, 3,300 BC, prepared a platform here. And they set up the tomb originally with one passageway that looked towards the sunrise on the winter solstice. So just to explain to people though, if you're not familiar with maybe mm. the Newgrange, mm. that would mean that at a certain point, as the sun mm. rises, it would, sh it would uh, the, yeah. directly go uh, align with the passage, illuminating the back of the passage, and then for the rest of the year, this wouldn't happen. Exactly. So there's one very significant exactly. day in the year, but yes. also, in the, like, I always find, I think we have this idea to think of ourselves as these technological geniuses, but you can see a place like this, we really are the... Uh, overused quote but standing on the, the shoulders of giants yes. in that people thousands of years ago had already developed an understanding of the solar calendar and knowing yeah. how to align this perfectly to capture the sun on that specific day. What's interesting about this is it tells us a couple of things about them. I mean firstly they're modern humans too. They have exactly the same capacities of intelligence, genius, architecture, creation and, and all the bad sides as well <laughs> we would have today but also these are our first farmers in Ireland as well the the progress of the year meant an awful lot to them because you know they had to know when to plant crops when to harvest crops and all of that kind of thing so marking the turning point of the year even for us today is an important event and it was no less important perhaps even more so back in the Neolithic so they started out with this eastern passageway which looked towards dawn the winter solstice and then at some point and the chronology it, it currently Morris is, is writing up and, and doing all of the the advanced dating to understand the chronology better but at some point that eastern passageway got subsumed into a slight enlarging or aggrandizing of this thing and they added a more elaborate western passageway which now looks towards the uh, sunset on the winter solstice, which is this, this one, one in that front. we're looking at here. Maybe yeah. you just walk up and yeah. explain to people. So what you're seeing is, you're seeing the passageway itself, it's formed of a series of upright stones set in sockets. These upright stones are called orthostats. And they had capstones on top and it creates a very narrow passageway. I mean, We'd struggle I, to go like to get. We're, we're husky gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> we, 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 might, we might struggle to get through that. You know? But 
at the back of that passageway, and it's a little hard to see it right now because the clouds are in, but at the back of that passageway, the stone that is standing up there is particularly heavily decorated with megalithic art, and, and the stones at the back there are very well decorated. Inside the passageway and in... It, it, it's, it's what you'd call an undifferentiated chamber in that it's not like Newgrange, which has a, a very distinctive burial chamber in a cruciform shape. This is more kind of like an end of a passage, if you like. But inside here, they found a huge quantity of cremated remains, men, women and children. There, there is a huge amount of bone was retrieved from the excavations here at Knockrow, which is particularly interesting. In front of it, you can see there's a large amount of quartz scattered around here. That's the white stone... That's the very white stone, and people would know it from the slightly controversial kind of white quartz facade that, that was put on, or facade that was put on the front of Newgrange. Here it's more laid out as kind of like a scattering leading into the tomb. It's less formalised, if you like, less regular. But what's really interesting as well here in terms of the geology is this is a remarkable place, the Lingon Valley. It doesn't look it in many ways, but you, you're on a kind of geological fault line. So you've got old Devonian sandstone here. You've also got grey wacky, which is the stone which is decorated with the megalithic art. And you have granite as well. And it seems like for whatever trick of glaciation and, and action, you've got a real mix of stones. And, and there's a deliberate choice of stones here in terms of where they sourced them. And they probably all sourced reasonably locally, but they're all different to the rest of the stones that you would see in the fields around us, if you like. So there was choice about almost every aspect of this in terms of how there was a meaning probably attached. And certainly stones like Greywacky, which is a form of sandstone, that's the ones that you would see around Newgrange, which are very heavily decorated with megalithic art. You're seeing the same kind of thing here as well. So this site presumably had a dual function to, to mm. one extent or another in that it is being used as a burial site, but yeah. also then it connects into the solar calendar. Mm. Obviously, those two things could potentially be connected, that's, but yeah. given that it's culture that is so dependent on agriculture, yeah. you'd have to imagine the importance of the sun is not purely related to the burials here, that it has that broader significance as well. Absolutely. I mean, passage tombs are a very interesting monument in many ways, and, and people would ascribe all manner of meanings to them. What we can say for sure is they are, represent communities, and not just one community. These things are in use for generations as well, much in the same way that you and I might go into a medieval cathedral and it's still in use, like Sicanuses or something yeah. like that, you know, what, 500 years more mm -hmm. since it was built. These passage tombs had a sing similarly long existence in a way. It wasn't kind of one single community that made this. And that's why they elaborated over time. The meanings of these things change. And what's kind of interesting about that is it gives you room to speculate and to tell stories yeah. about it in a way. So if we look at the kind of the Neolithic, so I haven't got the start dates for this site, but I believe it's probably around about 3,400 BC, thereabouts. Just to highlight that that's like over 5,000 years ago yeah. from the present. From, just, from the present, for yeah. sure. Um, but it, it probably came out of use, if it's anything like Newgrange, in around about sort of 2,900 say here this is where <laughs> the speculation but you'd have mm. to imagine that there's some considerable uh religious well spiritual yeah. shift at that point yeah. that these sites fall out of use well they do and they don't Finn, which is the interesting thing because people use them differently at okay. different stages so if we take the mound of the hostages which is another passage tomb and that's mm. on the hill of tara that although it 
didn't wasn't used so much as a, a passage tomb in that people weren't just buried within the passageway when we look at the Bronze Age and even into the early Iron Age. People were still buried on top of that and within that. So they still saw it as a sacred place in a way, but they might have a different meaning about it or they might tell a different story. And what I think is quite interesting about this site is when we consider the long arc of its history and the fact that the Western passage tomb was added later, when we think about certain cultures, for example, and this is me absolutely going off of one now, but this is pure speculation. And that's the fun yeah. thing about the Neolithic, you can speculate. When we think about other cultures, say like in Mesoamerica, for example, as they kind of were reaching their end, so to yeah. speak, when they were at the most challenged, like the Aztecs and the Mayans, that's when their religious expression got even more elaborate and even grander. You know, they started to build more temples. They started to build more things. And we see that in a few other cultures as well, that as the climate changes and so on, people invest more in trying to appease whether it's yeah. the gods or the ancestors and so on and i just think it's kind of poetic almost in a way that the western tomb is faced towards the sunset the ending of something and it makes you okay. think maybe they thought they were under a bit of pressure as a okay. society right. maybe they were looking towards the end of things rather than the beginning which the eastern tomb points towards but that that's creating a narrative there that might well not have existed <laughs> but i think it's quite a neat narrative yeah now people can come here today and i'll, I'll put a link in the show notes just yeah. to to how you can find uh, the site yeah it's probably worth warning is the wrong term but like this is not you're not coming to a newgrange type site here nope. Nope. this is you drive down a country lane past a farm you're really got to be wondering are you heading to the right place yeah but the reason I bring this up is just to discuss, you touched on it earlier, mm -hmm. when Newgrange was excavated, what you see there today, and if people aren't familiar with Newgrange, again, I'll put a link in the, in the show notes to it, but it, it's a very famous, um, similar monument to the one we're standing at today, but it was uh, renovated is the wrong term, but to a degree reconstructed in the 20th century. This mm. hasn't taken place here. I just wanted to ask you, I suppose, just a question about your thoughts on that, that, that idea mm. of how we approach these sites because you know if you visit this today mm -hmm. you can see it's it, it's old you wouldn't need to be an archaeologist because it, it, no, it, no. it, it has it is worn over time interpret what i'm wondering is that modern interpretation of these sites yeah it, it, it's an interesting question and and i think you know with newgrange although certainly it was excavated it, a lot of it wasn't excavated too so the passageway wasn't really you know they didn't completely dismantle that and then completely reconstruct okay. it in their own yeah. image so the front of it is probably the most yes yeah, yeah. messed with is the wrong thing but uh, you yeah, know what yeah. i mean that interpreted, that's interpreted yes yeah. i i think there's room for a variety of different interpretations so when murish came here you know there was a low bit of a low kern it was never in the condition that newgrange was in before they came along you know so there's a bit of a low kern. it was actually known as uh, it had two names uh before the excavations it was known as the cashel and it was also known as the Devil's Altar. There was also a lot right. of folklore about this place. Okay. And one of the stones, I, th I actually think it's this stone right in front of us here. If you're here when it's frosty, there's a series of megalithic art in the form of like, sort of shaped like the letter U. Yeah. There's like a double row of them going across it. So when it's frosty, that catches the frost and it looks like the devil's hoof prints have gone okay. over the stone. Okay. So that was one, so there was always a kind of pishog about the place that you yeah. don't mess around here. But the community also called it the Cashel and at different stages when they were doing, you know, the mass rounds and the, at a certain time of the year when yeah. they go around to all the different graveyards, they would always come here as well, even though it wasn't seen as, you know, That's a, an old a Christian then, potentially, yeah, yeah. of people continually coming back. Exactly. So in this case, it, it was a case of trying to conserve and represent what the site was like prior 
to a degree to the excavations, while at the same time allowing things like this, the eastern tomb, which was completely covered, to be seen and, you know, making it more tangible and more visible. I think when we're looking at interpretation on a broad scale of things, I think we need a mix of stuff because different people see different things in a site. We need the likes of, say, Trim Castle, which is largely, apart from making visitor access possible, they, they didn't try to reconstruct or re-render the walls and things yeah. like that. You know, you can see it's almost like looking into the skeleton, if you like, of a medieval castle. But we also need the ones which are slightly more reconstructed because some people need to see the, sort of the what it might have been like to live yes, in them, course, not just yeah, yeah. the dry bones of it, yeah. in a way. And I think if we can create opportunities for all of those kind of sites, and Newgrange does a fabulous job, I think, in the Bruno Bonia Centre in telling a really big story about many, many sites that's up around there. Yeah. It kind of acts as a vacuum, if you like, and it brings in all the tourists to understand what these places look like and how they acted. So all those other little sites out in the countryside don't necessarily, uh, they can remain intact, they can remain unvisited un in a sense. Yeah. Maybe just one more question before mm. we move along the frontier yeah. to a more recent, well, over, we'd only be a few, th or over a thousand years from the yeah, present yeah, then. Yeah. But you talked, you just mentioned the local community there. Yeah. And they still come here and have come here. Do you, do you know, they've been brilliant. Like, they, they, they came together as a group, and you can follow them, Lingon Valley Tourism, on, on, on social media and so on. And they really want to show off what's in their area because this is a very forgotten landscape in a way. Mm. It's kind of. It, it's the road between Tipperary and, and Kilkenny kind of thing. It's the kind of thing that you drive along every day without yeah. noticing. But as we'll see today, there's such a wealth of things here. So they've really tried to, you'll see really good signage at all the sites. You'll see really good, you know, signage posts as we go around. But every year at the winter solstice, they're here with the mince pies and the mull wine, the, you know, much like they did in the Neolithic, probably. <laughs> you know, but they put on a great community event here, you know, the, where we're all kind of celebrating together. So... As I think communities with these historic landscapes, they're, they're interdependent upon each other, in a sense. You know, the, the way that these sites have been preserved is because the people farming in this area and the people who have lived in this area have respected them mm. over thousands of years of, of work in this land. They haven't cleared it for handy stone to, to build sheds. They haven't, you know, plowed over the top of this stuff. It's here because of the community, in a sense. Um, so it, it, they, they've got to be commended in this case because they do such good work around this area. Leaving Knockrow, we travelled across that ancient frontier to a place called Aheni. Today, Aheni is a beautiful, picturesque Irish village. However, in the local graveyard, there are two enormous high crosses that date from the early Middle Ages. As we went to see them, Neil explained how they might be tied into the ancient frontier and are hugely important in terms of understanding wider Irish history. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. We've crossed that frontier. So at some point in the past, you probably would have moved into quite a different society, just judging yeah. on the material culture that survives. Which is really interesting. Now, we do see a sort of, for want of a better word, cross-border element to this site here at Henny, Because really we've got two of the great treasures of early medieval Ireland sitting in this graveyard. Mixed in with all the headstones, you have two absolutely fabulous high crosses, which are part of a series that we call the ossuary crosses because they're quite distinctive artwork. They're not figurative. Like if, you, if people are picturing uh, an early Irish high cross, they might be thinking of particularly the cross at Monaster Boyce or the cross of the scriptures at Clonmacnoise where you've got like uh, figurative depictions of scenes in the Bible and, and, and things like that. You know, you quite often see Adam and Eve, for example, you'd see Christ in the centre of the cross. Um, you might see uh, depictions from the Old Testament, the New Testament and so on. These instead, are, for a start, they're massive. <laughs> they are very oh, yeah. sizable crosses. Yeah. But what's unusual about them is that you've in, instead of depicting scenes like that, they have uh, what you've called bosses, these big round and, and you know, it's probably uh, show a picture, but they have these round bosses coming off them and incredibly intricate art around it. So, the thought to represent uh, metalwork actually, the sport uh, thought to represent a cross that was made in metal. You have two crosses here, the North Cross and the South Cross, and both are topped with what you would call a mitre, one of them more distinctively, so it looks like a little bishop's hat. Now, the bases of the crosses, unfortunately, are covered in moss and lichen, but underneath that, that is where you see more figurative depictions. You know, there's like a, a hunting sort of scene with a chariot and, and, and all of this kind of stuff and, and, and more religious depictions. But I might just unusual. wind the story back slightly. Mm. So outside the environs of the churchyard, there's the ruins of a building. You've got like that's one and a half walls. Is that that's the remains that, that's of what a, would have been the medieval church? Is that's it? the medieval church, uh, uh, St Crispin. Yeah. So and that's that's the, a Norman state. Oh, okay, so that, yeah. that was built later than. Yeah. These these crosses. What's interesting about the crosses for a long time, and the way I was taught when I first came to Ireland, is that these are some of our earliest high crosses. That these probably date back to like the seventh century, maybe uh, the eighth century. Okay. And uh, you know, and and I always thought that as well because they thought the figurative depictions were somehow um, more advanced, or uh, more advanced, yeah, or more yeah. elaborate, or so on. But when you actually look at the cross, and you look at the intricacy of the artwork and the interlace. That is no less skilled. In yeah, fact, yeah, it, it, it's yeah. of a higher degree of skill. And um, uh, it looks machine cut. It's so perfect. When were so, as an estimate of when these were erected? Yeah. So if we look at kind of uh, some of the high crosses, we do have dates for. You know, they they do range a little bit. Um, you know, so I I tend to think the likes of the Candona cross up in Donegal might be slightly earlier. You might have that at kind of the beginning of the ninth century. 
maybe late 8th century. But the, the classic ones, like the uh, Monaster Boys one, Cross the Scriptures, you're looking at the early 900s, so early 10th century. Okay. You know, and going throughout the 10th century then. You do get slightly later ones as well, up to the 12th century. Uh, you know, we you'd see nice ones at Kilfenora and things like that, with, which would be kind of mid-1100s, you know, after, between 1150 and 1200. Um, but these, I would guess, probably... 900 something like that anywhere between 850 and 950 I, I, I would be my estimate and were these erected in the landscape or do we think there was like was there a monastic site or some yeah some broader uh site here it's it's a really good question finn and, and usually you find high crosses within a monastic context they they're usually associated like clomet nice or like monaster boys in the center of a, a monastery um here there hasn't been a clearly identified monastic enclosure just in this immediate place here we start to say it's not there yeah we just haven't necessarily identified it yet or alternatively sometimes what you found happened was particularly in the kind of 18th and 19th century people would move them to where they saw okay. as a safe place so they might move them into a churchyard and or they might move them into the ruins of a church so they might the it's not to say the early monastery was definitely 100% right here. could have been nearby, and for whatever reason, it was going to be destroyed or whatever, and they moved them here. And this, you touched on it earlier, but this mm. also ties in to the uh, ancient boundary yes. that we've crossed. Yeah. The fact that these are erected here is tied into that, because in the early medieval period, the kings tended, tended to grant the church lands along a border for... Um, numerous reasons not yeah. least i suppose very practical yeah, it, 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 <laughs> yeah. but it, it, it provides a bit of a buffer yeah your rival king across the border is presumably going to be a little bit more hesitant about having to attack churchland to uh -huh. get to you yeah but yeah do you want to i suppose just talk us through i suppose that continuation of that border that we're moving down into the christian period exactly and when we think of borders you know there's borders which are practical borders in that sense and, and you know your land along your border is your least valuable land because it's the most subject to change so if you had um, farmers living along there and they were getting burned out every other year or something like that mm. you know so giving it to the church as you say it, it is quite a pragmatic thing that's not to say people didn't raid churches and monasteries yeah. irish it wasn't just the vikings doing that it was more common that an irish rival kingdom would raid a monastery somehow attached to the rivals you know so there's that aspect but there's also the cultural aspect as well and by having these really distinctive high crosses here on this side of the border if you like ossery is kind of declaring itself as, as doing its own thing that it has its own particular style its own particular ways as opposed to what you might see in munster which has a, a different style to that Mm -hmm. There's a spiral here that's reminiscent of maybe yeah. some of the artwork you'd see on prehistoric monuments. Mm -hmm. Just having come from Knock Row, we yeah. can see the artwork uh, yeah. over there. But is this, does, does this artwork on obviously a Christian cross, yeah. is that inspired by those earlier it's monuments that would have been in the landscape or do you find them all across the Christian world? No, I mean, this is what you would call very much insular art. This is a very Irish thing. You can see it, it's a motif that yeah. appears all the way along. Now, is it a cultural thing? Or is it, this is how we can make metalwork look really pretty? Is it kind of okay. a sort of a practical thing as well? I think there's a bit of both to okay. that. I, I think it's an easier thing to do than other forms of artwork. Possibly, or, or that's just like, you know yourself when you find yourself kind of doodling 
Yes, you know, sometimes you tend to go towards a spiral kind of thing. I think it's a little bit of an artistic expression that somehow works within our brain. But certainly, I think the people who who made this cross and the people who made the passage tomb at Knock Roll, I, I think that there are connections between them in the sense that they knew how to read the landscape, they knew where to go and source the stone. Again, Roger Sally was saying, the reason we find so many crosses in one particular area might not just be about religious sanctity of a particular place. It might not even be about, you know, a particular power broker trying to make a statement. It might be about there's a really good quarry there, okay. you know, and that's yeah. where there's the source of the material. So we know that the Lingon Valley geologically is a very interesting place. So I think they were probably aware as well to a certain degree of knock roll. Uh, you know, I, maybe there was... Maybe they, I'm not saying that they were copying the megalithic art when they made this, but I don't think that, you know, places like Newgrange, for example, we know that was visible all the way through its yeah. history yeah. in terms of the artwork and stuff. So I suppose it is that thing, you draw inspiration from lots of places. Yeah. And if you, if you do go and visit that and yeah. see it, it can be just subconsciously in your, yeah, you know, exactly. your, your, your memory or whatever. Exactly. I mean, I, I find art kind of... It's difficult to talk about in a way because almost everything is possible. Do you course, know, yeah, and, and yeah, it's yeah, like the yeah. earlier archaeology. But yeah, I mean, it, it's hard not to draw the comparisons. We've travelled five minutes and we're seeing a very similar motif between yeah. the two. Um, you can see on this separated by four thousand. Separated years. by just four thousand years. <laughs> you can see as well there was once a third cross here. You can see the base of there's, a cross. Oh, here, yeah, yeah. Um, which I think is quite interesting. And again, there's kind of a folklore uh, attached to it that somebody tried to steal the cross. And this, it's, uh, yeah. this, like we're, is this it? This, oh, sorry, yeah, yeah. This yeah, base yeah. here. And um, just to say to people at home, all that's left is a foot high socket, really, that yeah. you can quite clearly see that a, a cross would have fitted into it, but sadly, there's nothing left of uh, the cross itself. No, apparently, somebody tried to steal it and they put it on a boat to go down the river shore to Waterford okay. and it sank in Waterford Harbour. So okay. apparently there's another one of the Ossery Crosses somewhere <laughs> between the river shore and Waterford Harbour. So that's another common story that you'd hear about. You can actually see uh, when you look at the, the crosses in different light conditions from yeah. different angles as, as the light hits it on different parts of the day different elements of its artwork kind of really stands out and, and really looks kind of much stronger or brighter. Yeah. You know, um, but today's a good day to look at them, I think, because we're seeing them in, yeah, in, in the, good conditions. Yes. Yeah, they're fabulous. Like the, the lace work, yeah. really phenomenal. And again, yeah. you can come and visit this, like there's two sites that we've been to are just separated by a couple of minutes. Uh, I'll put links in the show notes below. But just mm. to say, Neil, people who come and they might have heard us talking about uh, the artwork that's covered by moss and lichens mm. and things like that. It's not advisable to scratch that off. Oh no, 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 God, no, no! Like you're damaging, like, and it yeah. might you might think it's stone. How mm. can I damage it? But if a yeah. thousand people, and like this has been here for over a thousand years, yeah, yeah, it only survives because people have this respect for it. Well, that's it, and actually, you know, although in a way it makes it slightly harder for us to see, it also protects it from weathering yeah. and from the acidification of rain. What's quite interesting as well is is that um, we're seeing greater lichen growth now because our fuel is getting cleaner. So oh, right, if you okay. go back to the kind of the 80s when lead was in petrol, 
yeah. and stuff. There was very little, and particularly if you look at Monash Voice, which is next to a main road and stuff like that, yeah. you know, there's very little lighting growth. But now, because we're all driving cleaner cars, cleaner fuel, it, it's it, one it, small it's way so, you can see the impact on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't it funny how it all kind of interconnects like that, you know? But the, I mean, these are I incredible monuments in a sense, and the scale of them, the scope of them, you know, figuring out about did they put the decoration on the cross before they put the cross into place? Or, or did they put yeah, the decoration on the cross afterwards? To be viewed. Yeah. Did they, I suppose if, they, if it's well, erected, they know how to yeah. how it'll be viewed, is it? Well, kind of, well it, it's the high stakes nature of it, right? Because believe it or not, these were put in place by a, a version of a crane. Okay. If you think about how they lifted them up and sat of them course, within the yeah, socket. Yeah, yeah. So if it snaps at that point and you've spent a year decorating these crosses, okay. you know, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> your heart would be fairly broken. So right? you might just carve out the very basic. Uh, yeah, and then do and the then final touch. Okay. Another question about these crosses as well, which is often asked is, were they painted? Oh, okay. We're, we're seeing them now as stone and they're still incredibly beautiful. You know, yeah, they're still yeah. incredibly intricate, but they might have been very brightly painted at the time okay. as well, you know, and there's a couple of... Which would really bring out the, the features carved into them. Yeah, so the, the big roundels on it, those big kind of bosses, they're yeah. representing like gems or, or glass in a metal cross. Okay. So if you could imagine them, enamel, like a bright red yes, or a bright yes, blue yeah, or a yeah, white, yeah. up against the kind of more uh, painted cross, like it, it'd be almost girish to our eyes. Yeah. But like a lot it, of medieval though artwork, we're well not artwork, but I've mm -hmm. you know I've seen reconstructions of furniture and things like that, mm -hmm. and they had a very different, yeah, uh, I suppose whatever ta artistic taste in terms yeah. of color yeah. that they would mix maybe quite bright reds and blues, yeah. which today would as you be considered garish, and it's not yeah. necessarily. Yeah. It's just interesting how that ch uh, how it changes because if you're in a room with that now, it's, yeah. it's almost catching your eye and it's not pleasant. Whereas obviously that's just a to one degree or another construction. Yeah. After a henny, Neil and myself drove further down the valley to a medieval graveyard and castle at a place called Kilcash before finishing our journey at a 1798 battlefield. Now those stories are all coming in next week's episode. Before signing off today, though, I'd like to thank Neil for his time. You can find links to his podcast and that service, Tua, in the show notes below. Sound on today's episode was by Kate Dunley. Until next week, Sloan. <laughs>